Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buda. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are continuing our coverage of Wolfe's novella Tracking Song, which was originally published in the collection In the Wake of Man in 1975. Though, of course, we have read it in The Island of Dr. Death and other stories and other stories. And this time we're going to be reading up to the section break on page 192. So we're going to get through the sixth day of our narrator's journal. But before we get into that, we want to say a huge word of thanks to our Patreon supporters. It's been a few months since we've recorded episodes for this show. Uh, But since then, the entire network, all four hosts, uh, I would say that we took PhilCon 2019 by storm. We did eight shows or something like that. Uh, We had a great time, even if the hotel bar was frustratingly bad. (laughs) But there is considerable expense involved in doing a con like that. We could not have done it without the support that we get on Patreon. So we just want to say thank you so much for making that possible. And of course, we hope that going to cons will help us grow the network and help us reach more of our Patreon goals and uh, make being a Patreon supporter more valuable and more worthwhile. Yeah, thank you so much to all of our supporters. And, And as always, if you like the show and you support it, tell your friends about it get them to support us it allows us to do much more than we are currently already doing we have a lot of plans for expansion of the network and things like that but we can only do those things if we meet our patreon goals that's not to say though we are in any way ungrateful for the support we already get so thank you so much to those of you who do support the show on patreon let's get back into tracking song though last time we left off with Cutthroat being ostracized, in a sense, from the first tribe he met, which we've concluded have some similarities to wolves in some way in the totemic world that Wolf is building here. And now Cutthroat is going on his own journey. So that's where we're picking up here. Glenn, let's just get going. Right. So it was the night of day three of the narrator's recorded journal when we left off. And and now we pick up the next morning on day four. When he wakes, the, the narrator says goodbye to the people he's been staying with and even shares breakfast with Longknife and Red Cloy. And there's a, a great detail here as well. The the narrator had gone to their tent to return the club bow that, that Red Cloy had lent him when he was supposed to be uh, needlessly guarding the gathering party. And really, he's been hoping that they would just tell him to keep it. But they don't. Uh, They do, though, invite him to breakfast. And this, I think, is consistent with the world that Wolf has been developing, right? Because it's one thing to share a scarce resource, but it is another thing entirely to give away the means of getting that scarce resource. And this really emphasizes what's important to these people and how harsh their environment is. But... With this, with breakfast done, he sets out on his own in search of the great sleigh and his old life and his old identity. There's not much wind. So at first he has to drag the sled behind him until he finds a downslope and a tailwind. And he has his first sledding experience, which I have to say is just delightful. This absolutely made me wish that we lived in a climate that gets actual winter. (laughs) And we get a heavy dose again of Wolf the Engineer here as the narrator is figuring out how to use the sails on the sled, learning how to, to make it travel faster and so on. I mean, there's a lot of detail about the engineering, about the way that this machine, this tool works. And in fact, he gets going so quickly that he begins to expect to overtake the great sleigh at any moment, which he has calculated was 60 hours ahead of him when he started that morning. But even though he sails all day and even into the night where the light of the two moons helps him see, he doesn't catch up with it. 
And of course, this casual mention here of two moons uh, confirms what we'd already been suspecting, which is that we're on another planet rather than uh, somewhere in Earth's future, even far into Earth's future. Though I suppose, you know, we may also be in Earth's future. We're just not on Earth. And that's all we get for day four. But this is a significant marker in the novella as it starts to suggest to us that we're going to actually get something of a hero's journey here as the narrator sets off on his quest. So the whole shape of the story has really changed from what we thought we were doing in the first three days. Yeah, it's not just merely a desert island survival tale. We're now getting a full-blown adventure story, a quest story. Another thing I want to point out here is in this section, for the second time, we get information that the width of the Great Slay is 100 meters wide. So it's as wide as a football field, and it's much longer than that. Like a log is one of the descriptions we get. And there are a lot of people on it sort of cruising around this planet. It moves at a pace that's a little bit slower than the wolf people walk, than Cutthroat's first encounter with people on this planet, their tribe, than they walk typically. I don't know why I felt like pointing that out here, but it's worth keeping in mind, I guess, just just to keep in mind what Cutthroat is after, which is a sort of civilization that is apart from the burgeoning people groups that are learning how to use tools and things like that on this planet. Cutthroat also believes he is of these people and that he himself is set apart from uh, the animals that populate this world. I'm glad you pointed out the two moons bit because it is so subtle in this section. And you're right. If it wasn't obvious before, it's explicit now that we are off Earth. And I just have to say, I have nothing to say about the mechanics of snow sailing, though I think it is (laughs) super cool. And I'm glad that Wolf has given a lot of thought to what it means to build a sled that sails in the snow. Yeah, I am too. I mean, this made me feel like a kid again. I mean, this is exactly the sort of thing that I would I would daydream about in the sort of four months of of snowmageddon that we would get in Chicago. Uh, I was fortunate enough to live on top of a hill, and we had a great time sledding down the hill. Me and all the other other neighborhood kids, but we never thought to put you know sails on any of the sleds and uh, and really, really go after it. Uh, I, I wish that we had. I really wish that we had. Well, let's let's get to day five here. So when he had stopped sailing the night before, the, the narrator had made a shelter really just simply by, by digging a trench in the snow. And I'm reminded here of Sandwalker from a story by John V. Marsh. But it turns out that digging a trench in the snow was not really the best idea. And, and he says that he was lucky to wake up at all. He was so cold and, and almost numb, really. And he knows that next time he's going to have to stop early enough in order to construct a real shelter. We also get some details here about food preparation, and and here he explains that the the women he was just with, they would cook food by heating stones over a fire and then dropping them into a leather bag filled with snow. And I guess what he's getting at here is that this will steam the the food. And again, I just love how much attention Wolf pays to the materiality of his world, to what it's like to live in it in in a mundane way, right? I think another writer would have just overlooked all of these details, but these these details really serve to build the world, to make us feel like we live there too. It makes me feel the cold, and it makes me hear the wind howl in ways that actually just describing the cold and describing wind howling don't do, and it's just brilliant, uh, brilliant writing. But breakfast is not really what matters here. What's important is that the narrator is going to encounter more people. These people are not like the group that he was with when he began his journal. These people are short and stocky, and they have children. 
And here we get an interesting note about how the previous group he was with had no children because they practice a very strict birth control. They only have kids at a time of year when they know that food will be plentiful. And then when those kids are born, they wait until those kids reach adolescence before they reproduce again. And this way, there are always more adults than children. And I suppose that this keeps the group from growing. So it's really an environmentally sustainable population control as well. And this version of it, the wolf envisions here, right? This is obviously fairly extreme, but... We actually do surmise from material evidence that most unsettled early humans engaged in behavior like this, not necessarily the waiting for kids to reach adolescence bit, but certainly the specific time of year bit and the waiting a few years part, too, seems to be the case for what we can tell from the material evidence, which is very interesting. And, and by the way, I should say here that we are about to get a name for this first group that the narrator was with the whole previous episode. And, you know, since we're about to meet a second group, we may as well introduce that name now so that we can tell the two groups apart here. So that first group uh, with Long Knife and Red Cloy, that group was called Wigiki. Uh, again, this is another name that, that, that sounds, though is not actually, but sounds like it's uh, a Native American name. Okay, but now we should really meet this new group here. The narrator introduces himself and he says he doesn't want to fight them. They don't want to fight him either. And since a serious business storm is coming, they all just go back to their settlement for the night, even though the narrator is you know, really quite eager to keep going after the great sleigh. So let's start with a physical description of these people, and then we can talk about their culture. As we said already, they're short, they're broad. A squat might actually be the best word for it. And, and here's what the narrator actually says about their appearance. We'll, we'll quote here. They are strikingly ugly. Their faces are nearly as round as if they had been drawn with a compass and heavily jowled. Their eyes are small and hidden under heavy brows, and their noses are flat and upturned so that their nostrils appear as circles. And then on top of this, the, the young ones have a type of downy fur that, that covers them, and this is something that the adults lack. They seem to be more, more bare-skinned, I guess. And as for their culture, what we get in these first paragraphs is largely about food and, and about clothing, but we do also get their, their name and we learn some of their individual names as well. So as a group, they're called Pamagaka, and the leader is a man named Eggseeker, and the lowest person in their social structure is a woman named Bloody Face in the Morning. They wear less clothing than the Wigiki, and they go barefoot in the snow, and the children are actually just naked because they've got this like downy fur on them. And for shelter, they have a lodge made of brush where the Wigiki had used skins. They'd made sort of tents. And Wolf, the engineer here, right, he gives us, uh, I'd say, fairly detailed description of how this lodge is constructed. I mean, it might be overly detailed description of how this lodge is constructed, actually, but you can see him, you know, see Wolf like drawing blueprints of this thing while he's writing this story. And as for food, uh, they make a main course of roots and, and, and greens, right, vegetables that they get. And then they have some meat as a dessert. And this meat comes in the form of whole dead animals. It's uh, small creatures, though it's not the snow monkeys from the day before, but it's small creatures, and everyone is given one of these small creatures according to their social standing. There's a real ritual around this. And then they skin them, and they, they preserve the hide for some other purpose, of course, right? You can't waste anything here. And they, they roast these animals over a communal fire. And we're also told here that they acquire these animals actually by stealing them from the Wigiki, who like to bury their kills in the snow to freeze them for later. So really, the, the, the Pamagika are scavengers, uh, even for their, their meat here. 
And so in all, right, there are some distinct cultural differences here. But more important, I think, is that the Pamagika seem to be a distinct biological species from the Wigiki. And this was, I suppose, clear with Ketan and Nashwonk. But I think it's more important here where we're seeing groups of people, right? Because those were those were people that we really saw on their own. And Eggseeker here even says that the, the narrator actually looks like one of the Wigiki, but is clearly less cruel than they are. Uh, but I think we should note that there is no question for the narrator here that the Pamagika are, are people, right? He thinks of them as people. He never wonders whether they are animals. But I also wonder what the Wigiki would think, right? Do they think the Pamagika are animals? I would think that the Wigiki do think or would think that the Pamagaka are animals, though it's not clear to me that they would eat them or be allowed to eat them. Uh, there's not a clear indication that the Wagiki think of the Pamagaka as prey. Uh, and, and, and so I think that that's an interesting distinction because I think the hierarchy of this world is really groups of people, as Cutthroat thinks of them, that are predators and prey uh, rather than animals. There's there's a an ecosystem that's at play here. I really like the survival element of this bit of the tale of Cutthroat. Uh, the cooking section that you pointed out was great. I mean, Wolf basically reinvents a primitive MRE here, uh, but I think <laughs> that this version of cooking food in a hot leather bag is much better than uh, using canteen water to heat up a chemical heating agent and eating food that still isn't heated all the way through and, and tastes better. I guess what I'm trying to say is that this food is fresher, at least in this world, than anything you'd find in an MRE. Uh, I also like that you pointed out the sense of the life cycle that we get from the Wigiki and how it's different from the Pamakika. Uh, you know, you said the Wigiki only mate during certain seasons when the adolescents have come in come of age and can basically hunt for themselves and the pammy the pamakiki are not that way because they're scavengers and even though they are scavengers they still go out in groups and this is important because wolf is showing us that the pamakiki tools don't really double as weapons the same way the wagiki tools do and and here's some more details about the pamakika that wolf uh, kind of casually drops into the story. Uh, apart from having like the downy hair and, and bristles that the adults get, he uses the word snuffle to describe the way that the Pamagika surround Cutthroat and smell his clothing and, and kind of get to know him. This is absolutely a different type of hybridized group, if not an entirely distinct species. The fact that their noses are upturned and their their little holes in the face maybe points to the type of animals that they represent, which we'll be going through in our discussion as well. But it's just something to think about because Wolf is imbuing these characters with animal senses, and that that's part of what he's doing as a writer. That's part of his project of writing this story. There's another element to this group that is very different from the Wagiki. The Pamagika, or Egg Seeker at least, is interested in trading in wisdom rather than trading in meat. And what that indicates to me is that the peoples that live on this planet don't have a system of trade set up. It's not like the Pamagika have something that the Wagiki want and the Wagiki trade food for whatever the Pamagika have. The Pamagika steal food 
from the Wagiki, and they are after something different, which is wisdom. So all these people live very primitively, but the Pamagika, at least, are interested in learning more about the world they live in and the way other people or animals survive in that world to create a better way to live that is not only important to survival, but is important to getting to a state of life that is beyond survival. And all of this is just kind of casually folded in to the narrative and Cutthroat's experience as he encounters these peoples. I'm really glad that you pointed out this bit from the Joan Gordon interview because it I wasn't really thinking along these terms as I was reading the story and, and, and organizing my notes for it. But clearly, right, what we're getting described here with these people, their their nose, right, really suggests pig in, in some way. I am looking forward to unpacking that more with you. Uh, and, and actually, I'm really looking forward to kind of working through how that might affect my reading of what's going on in this story, because it's not something that I was thinking about as I, I read this. Uh, I do also just want to say to listeners that uh, we are not doing a good job of pronouncing any of these names. And <laughs> Wigiki and Pamagaka, we're just, we're messing up the Pamagaka completely we've you and i have both said three different pronunciations i think in the span <laughs> yes, of five I minutes that's fair i to think say. that's probably gonna i know and i think it's just probably gonna continue to happen i'm not sure why i want to do justice to what these people call themselves but i think the closeness of these names are like the, the 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 gk and then just having the vowels in there they all just get really kind of uh gets kind of muddled uh there but it is pamigaka we'll do our best to to, to get it right it's pamigaka and wigiki but we will probably be transposing that as we go uh, but now that the the narrator is hanging out with the Pamagaka, uh, we're going to get some insight or, or really hints, I guess might be a better word for it, uh, into the backstory of what the Great Slate is and, and what it's doing here. But there is also some action, and I actually want to deal with the action first, which you know, not usually the way that I go about doing things here. But as the uh, Pamagaka are sitting around their fire, enjoying their dessert of frozen rodents, uh, they get a visitor, a violent visitor. And this visitor's name is Mimunka. And and he is almost as big as Nash Wonk. Uh, he has come by to ask for a tribute in the form of one of the Pamagaka uh, requests that has been granted in the past, uh, which I find really sort of hard to, to, to understand. Uh, but he says that if he can just get one Pamagaka to eat, he will leave them alone for a long time because he's about to go switch hunting grounds anyway. Eggseeker. Totally not into this idea, and he says as much, but the conversation is derailed when Mamunka notices the narrator and wants to talk about the great sleigh. Now, we don't learn very much about it here. That's really for the other ends of this scene, which we will do next. But it's interesting to note that the Pamagaka spoke with the people of the great sleigh, and they value that interaction a lot. Right? I think you used the word you know, reverence or revere uh, about this before, Brandon. But Mamunka didn't speak with them, and he's clearly disdainful of the great sleigh and the people who who man it and and all of this comes to a head here this whole scene comes to a head when Eggseeker launches a sneak attack on Mamunka it doesn't go very well he is mortally wounded though we're still going to get a, a, a Baromir-esque protracted I mean really protracted deathbed conversation with him before he goes but Mamunka does now run off and the younger male Pamagaka Chew. But Mamunka does here run off, and the, the younger male Pamagaka, they chase after him. This seems to be a characteristic of Mamunka behavior, to, to not fight to the death, but to only fight when you can clearly win, and otherwise to, to run away. So, all right, that is the action part of day five here. But what I'm really interested, I think what we're all really interested in, is the conversation that the narrator has with Eggseeker. 
Exeker is clearly in awe of the Great Slay. He talks about it with this reverence, and he regards the people of the Great Slay as wise, right? And and, and wisdom, being wise, is something that that he values. Uh, it seems to be something of an honor for them to, to have one of the people of the Great Slay as a guest. And we should be clear up front here, right, that the narrator never tells Eggseeker that he has no memory and doesn't really know anything about the Great Slay. He's really acting here, playing a, a character. But at any rate, Eggseeker believes that the narrator is going to bestow more wisdom on them. And much of this conversation happens while Eggseeker is dying, which is convenient because it means that the narrator is never really going to get the answers he wanted, right? This is characteristic wolfishness here for sure. But nonetheless, Eggseeker indicates that the the people of the Great Slay wanted to know all about the Pamagaka. And there's a great line here when Eggseeker says that he sang them the song of their law. This is a cultural detail that I just love. But it's also, I think, really important to notice that both sets of social uh, people here, as opposed to the lone or, or coupled up people that we've seen so far, use singing as part of their their culture in some way. And he has some more specifics as well about what he taught the people of the Great Slay, and this includes where to find water, where to find food. But when it's time to share what the people of the Great Slay taught him, he becomes too tired for conversation. Uh, get another gimmick, obviously here, but. A young Pamagaka named White Apple, he's just on the cusp of adulthood, which is why he couldn't chase after the Mamunka. But White Apple says that the people of the Great Slay told them that the world is going to change. And this is super important, so we're just going to quote this here. Here's what he says. The world will change. The snow will melt and never return. And the new children will never have seen it and will wonder when we speak. And then he goes on to say that this will happen soon. Of course, that's a relative concept. Who knows what the word soon means to the people of the Great Slay or the the Pamagaka, for that matter. Uh, But they believe that this is true. They believe the people of the Great Slay because they've shown them the future. They've parted the curtain of days, is how White Apple puts it. And here's what he says about this. And again, I'm just going to quote because I think this is very, very important, very significant. From the lodge of the Great Slay, a stone was brought. This was touched and it lived as though there were a great fire in it. Then the curtain of days was torn, and we saw before us the world that is to be when the snow is gone. The sun was bright, and there were many plants. Men of our race walked among them, with Lenezy and his wife and child. Now, I took this to be a description of, like, a TV of some sort that was showing them either a simulation, like a CGI simulation, or maybe even just actual footage from Earth or, you know, the past, I guess, maybe if we think that this is just far future Earth or something like that. But, but Brandon, I'll be really interested to hear if you inferred something else. This is one of the, the fun things about the way Wolf does this type of storytelling. But before we talk about that, there are two more things that we should say, and then we'll have a, a big pause here to digest, to work through all of this information. And the first thing is this business with the lodge on the Great Sleigh. Now, this called to mind a conning tower and a submarine or an aircraft carrier to me, and I'd already had this kind of image in mind, so it seemed to be reinforcing that at this point. But part of why it did that is that the Wigiki had told the narrator that the Great Slay resembled a log. You you had mentioned this already just a few minutes ago, Brandon, but this was actually from the first episode, but I don't think we remembered to point it out uh, in that episode. So we're pointing it out now. And I do just want to say that, of course, right, we have had spaceships described as logs. That was in a story by John V. Marsh. And I think that's going to be something we're going to want to keep in mind here as we're figuring out what is going on in this story. And then the last thing to say about this interaction here is that the the people of the Great Slay have also given out some new rules to follow when this great change happens. The most important is that certain foods are forbidden. And in particular, there are some birds that hide their nests under branches that bow to the ground. 
And when the warmth comes, they're not going to know what to do, at least for a little while. And so very few eggs will hatch. And during that time, the, these eggs, the eggs of this species, need to be left alone, right? They should not be eaten, even though these people normally would eat them. And all right, I think this is a great time to pause, right? And just talk about what we can infer from all of this, right? What do you think the Great Slate is at this point, Brandon? And, you know, what do you think it's doing here? Well, before I answer that question, I just I just want to point out this other use of the word song that Wolf uses in in this story, which is called tracking song. Here we get it in the sense of the Pamagaka who are saying uh, that they have their laws as songs. They sing the song of their law. Uh, and they're also getting new laws from the great sleigh. So the primary law of the Pamagaka is to preserve their own kind. And it's kind of up to each species to preserve their own kind. And this is another sense, as I said, of the word song that we have to think about as the word song is in the title of this story. And I think this title is more significant maybe than some of some of Wolf's other titles. But what I really want to hone in on here is this bit about the parting of the curtain of days or the tearing of the curtain and the snow melting and the world will change when White Apple says the snow will melt and the world will change and goes on with this dialogue. I didn't give much thought to the technology that shows the Pamagaka this because the language here is kind of biblical prophecy, both the Old Testament prophecy and then also the effects of Christ's death is the the curtain in the temple rends or tears into two, uh, which basically means that the barrier between God and man is no longer uh, encountered in this holiest of holies, but that there's a new way to encounter God after Christ's death. You also see this in the book of Revelation as well with with the revealing of the prophecies as, as John, the revelator on the island of Patmos, is being shown the future world through prophecy and the secret spiritual world that's going on behind the scenes. So I think Wolf is using that sort of language and cueing us into uh, prophetic vision more than he's interested in the technological means of that. So I kind of skimmed over those lines a little bit and I honed in on a totally different part of the language set that Wolf was using to talk about this. But this line really also stuck out to me where Wolf says, where White Apple says, men of our race walked among them. The Lenezi and his wife and child. And if we're thinking of this as a kind of totem story and we've encountered wolves and deer, uh, maybe some cat figures as well, maybe a moose, I don't know. All of that will become clear in our discussion. Um, this line of thinking that the different species will be at peace with one another is a hallmark of prophecy within the Old Testament about the the new world. And it's most clearly laid out in Isaiah, but many of the Old Testament prophets discuss the new covenant uh, that will return the world back to its state of natural order and peaceableness between uh, kind. Uh, the peaceable kingdom here is, is the idea. And a state of peace between mankind and wild beasts will also be restored. These verses can be found in Isaiah 11, and I'm going to read them. And uh, I'm going to read them because I think it's going to help us clarify what's going on with the great sleigh here and maybe understand uh, the ideas that Wolf is toying with. So this is from Isaiah 11. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze 
Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so I think you can see maybe clear parallels between the seeking of knowledge or wisdom here, um, the promise of a new world, of the laws that protect kind from kind, but also allow uh, predators and prey to be together, and the idea of a human or a, a, a human child sort of being the leader of this type of creation um, all over this part with the Pamagaka. So to me, that's what the Great Slay is up to. It, it's ushering in a new world, and I think that that's pretty clear from the language. But I also think Wolf is examining on some level just what the logistics of such a new world could be in terms of understanding evolutionary biology. You know, Cutthroat is learning all of this information secondhand. And so there's a lot that we're going to have to work out in the discussion. We're going to have to examine just what's going on with Cutthroat's amnesia um, and maybe why it's important that Cutthroat perhaps not just doesn't, but oughtn't remember his previous life uh, among the people of the Great Slay. There's just a lot going on in this section that I kind of picked up on from the language that, that Wolf was using. And this, of course, is something that's pretty characteristic of, of Gene Wolfe, right? That he's doing two things here with this story. He's This is a fantasy story, right? We have uh, a, a world that is largely defined, or we have a setting that is largely defined by it, its weather and its, its ecology. We have a hero going on a quest and meeting different groups of strange people, and we're learning uh, what they look like, and we're learning about their culture and their customs. Just as at the same time that the hero is, that is the stuff that fantasy novels are, are made of. And Wolf is doing that here. But he is also telling a science fiction story, right? We have the, the hero is a guy with coveralls and uh, military issue boots, right? This is really not all that different from what we might have worn in certain circumstances in the, the army, right? And we're seem clearly to be talking about a spaceship and gravity is a thing that exists here. And biology is definitely a thing that exists here, uh, especially ecology, right? That it's not just uh, fantasy, maybe in the way that like Clark Ashton Smith might do something like this. And especially if we're thinking back about the trees, that's a note that we have seen Clark Ashton Smith strike several times on elder sign, for example, but Wolf is clearly thinking more in terms of what's the scientific, what's the ecological context for those trees rather than what's going to make an amazing landscape painting, right? Like what's the Hieronymus Bosch way of of doing this? Wolf is trying to science it in some way. And this is great. I mean, this is one of the things I love about Wolf is that he can write a fantasy story that is also a science fiction story or vice versa. Um, or there's other ways to think about that as well, but he's having it both ways. And even putting that all in just this one description, right, of of a tool, but then using biblical language and especially giving some kind of alien or fantasy creature biblical language when presumably they don't actually have any biblical knowledge, any knowledge of that text uh, is amazing. And it does clearly, as you point out, it right signals to us that we should be thinking about a great change, a really profound change, but a, a change that is a type of salvation, right? And so all of that points to, yeah, the great slay is here to save this world in some 
in some way. And the language that we get here, the description that we get here, is that this winter is going to be brought to an end. That maybe this winter is... Uh, you know, it's not just a harsh winter that, of course, is creating scarcity and that is therefore also creating lots of violence among these peoples, but that maybe, you know, this winter doesn't have to exist. It doesn't have to be. Someone can put an end to it. And actually, just as I'm talking here, I'm being kind of reminded of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe a little bit. And I know we're going to be talking about Wolf and Lewis uh, when we get to the end of this story. But I love that you point out how all of that is just embedded in this one paragraph. Uh, that's just just really masterful storytelling. It's heavy stuff, too. Absolutely. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about craft here kind of rather quickly in this episode, but it's going to be a big part of our discussion because of the way this story is written. It almost doesn't give you room to breathe to think about how it's written. And, and it's just something that Wolf does so well here. Yeah, I mean, it just fills me with with envy. Well, uh, let's move on to, to day six. This is actually the last day that we're going to cover on this episode. And really, before we get into the content of this section, I, I want to point out, to, I, I want to actually point to another bit of craft here. I want to point to Wolf's transition from day five to day six. It's really just, again, some storytelling that is masterful. That's really awesome. Uh, day five ends with this. Unexpectedly, Eggseeker said, I had thought to die defending the women and their little ones, not beside the fire. But he's not actually dead, as the narrator is recording his entry for the day, and we only learn that Eggseeker has in fact died overnight in the second paragraph of Day 6, and that's because Wolf opens up Day 6 with these three sentences. This is the sixth day. I have just played over what I said yesterday. Kim is asleep, and realized that I should not have ended my report so abruptly. It was not intentional. And so... We have Wolf teasing us twice across this section break, right? He ends one section with a question of life and death and then opens up the next section by ignoring that cliffhanger and introducing us to a character we haven't actually met yet, but who apparently is going to be important. And then only after that get back gets back to the, the cliffhanger. And that is how it's done, right? This is great pacing. This is something that keeps us turning the pages. This, again, just was something that had me in awe. Yeah, and this is the best moment here to just point out craft which we haven't done at all which is usually what we're busy doing when we're talking about wolf stories it's like ah oh, the story craft is incredible that you don't have room for it in this story because as you said glenn the pacing of this story is so brisk it just moves and this is a long novella i read it in two sittings and that was only because i had to leave the coffee shop i was reading it at because I was beginning to feel bad about taking up a whole table when I had finished my coffee like 35 minutes ago. And <laughs> I didn't <laughs> want to get another cup because I'd already had enough coffee. So, you know, part of what's really just incredible about this story is that while the writing is evocative, every single sentence serves the plot. And so the craft becomes invisible. You just get absorbed into this story more so than almost any other wolf story I've read, I think, so quickly. And it just doesn't let you go until it's over. And you're right. I love the way Wolf introduces a new character whose name is Kim. Uh, and we want to learn about her, even as we learn of the death of Eggseeker. It's like it, you're just in the thrall of this narrative. It's great. Yeah, and this is a really long novella. It's hard to gauge how it compares to some of the other novellas, at least the other novellas that aren't in The Island of Dr. Death and other stories and other stories. But I was thinking about how this compares to uh, The Fifth Head of Cerberus, the, the three novellas in The Fifth Head of Cerberus. And in particular, I was thinking about how it compares to a story by John V. Marsh, with which it shares a lot of DNA. We've, we've pointed out some specific instances of that already, but really just shares the kind of uh, overarching idea of being a fantasy story that also has some science 
science fiction stuff going on in it, this way that Wolf blends these two genres, but tells a hero's quest uh, in a strange place. And this is significantly longer than a story by John V. Marsh, but I feel like it moves so much faster, but is also at the same time uh, just as immersive. That this is this is Wolf really firing on all cylinders, and and I might tip my hand a little bit here and say that this might actually be the best thing we've read by Gene Wolf so far. I certainly thought so as I was reading it. You know, I, I think you know we chatted a little bit uh, before recording, uh, you know, over the past week or so, and I told you like almost every story you read by Gene Wolfe, especially his novellas, I'm tempted to say like, this is Gene Wolfe at his best. This is a masterpiece. Like he's actually knocked it out of the park this time. This is the best he's ever done. This might be the best he's ever done. I think in terms of just the pure (laughs) pleasure of reading the amount of detail he's able to put in there and just the, the narrative and it's pacing. I mean, this is his first masterpiece, just like everything else he's written before is also his first masterpiece. Yeah, that's right. I think that's a fair way to, to put it, right? Everything is his first masterpiece until it's superseded by his next big story. Right. Well, I think uh, let's let's move along here. Let's actually really move on to day six and go meet this character, Kim, who has been so masterfully teased for us here. So the, the narrator starts by closing out his business with the, the Pamagaka. Now that Eggseeker is dead, the, the rest of the group are going to eat him. Uh, it's not quite so plain as that. They're, they're going to have a funeral for Eggseeker, and the feasting part of the funeral is possible in this harsh environment only because the dead person is the feast. And there's a cosmology behind this as well. It's not gruesome or grotesque necessarily. Eggseeker's body is going to be reabsorbed into the, the tribe where it belongs. This is really the last service that Eggseeker will provide for his people, provide for his family. There might actually even be some some Christ imagery here, I suppose, as I'm thinking of now that you've pointed out some of the biblical allusions uh, in the stories that we've heard from these people already. And I have to say, I think there's something beautiful about this sentiment as well that really stands in contrast to the way that we in our culture treat the bodies of our dead, which is really to isolate them from the environment and preserve them in some artificial way. Uh, I mean, you know, the idea of eating people is certainly disturbing to me, but there is a real beauty to the way that they are thinking about this. But it is really disturbing to the narrator who decides that it is time for him to go when he sees that people are beginning to carve up and cook egg seekers body and you know i mean i would feel this way too if you know this was happening to you uh, brandon i would also not want to stick around <laughs> for that uh, and so uh so now we're gonna get the day's adventure that will introduce us to kim Yesterday's storm has passed. It's a it's a fairly calm day now. In fact, it's almost too calm, and the the sailing on his sled is much slower than it was yesterday. But still, he does get going. And around noon, he encounters another person, and this is Kim. Uh, she's a, a woman. Her full name is Kim Glowing, and she's jogging along the track of the great sleigh. And we get a bit of apprehension here on the part of the narrator as he decides what to to do as he's going to pass her. But ultimately, he decides to pick her up and and, and offer her a ride. Uh, And we'll get to their conversation in a moment. But I want to talk about her appearance and her characteristics first, because it is clear that she is yet another distinct species of humanoid here on this planet. Kim is tall, not, you know, Ketan or or Nashwonk tall, but she's tall for a woman, at least to the narrator. She also is keeping a good pace for a very long time. And finally, we get a bit about her face, which the narrator describes as largely expressionless and and difficult to read. And all he can really notice is that she has dark eyes and high cheekbones, though though he does also say that she has beautiful teeth, which is, I don't know, not something I've ever said about anyone. Uh, Finally, here we get a bit about her culture as well. Uh, One of the things that we learn is that she is the firstborn daughter, and that 
evidently means something, right? This implies some sort of station and entitlement, though we don't really get any more than that. And then there's a bit about her name. Uh, Her father had wanted to name her Seven Snows, which is a common name for girls among her people. But he was away in his boat when she was born. And that's a great detail, too, by the way, right? This is the first vehicle that we've encountered since the Wigiki and their, their sailing sled here. And so because her father was gone, her mother named her Kim Glowing. And, and here's what she says about that. My mother had left her bed and seen the Kim blowing from tree to tree like a soft star in the air and completed the naming. And so I have some questions about this, but mostly because I want to know what Kim means. We should say that this is spelled C-I-M. Here it seems to be a type of object that can blow from tree to tree, I guess, but but also lightweight enough so as to be described as soft, right? Maybe this is like a specific type of snow or something like that. But I'm also concerned about glowing and blowing here, right? Being separated only really by one letter, being close to each other on the keyboard, uh, especially given that this volume has so, so many typos in every single story. And I have to say, it's it's been a while since we've really said so on air, but right, one of our standard operating procedures is that it is against the rules for the recapper, that's me this time, uh, to look at other scholarship. So I did not go read Mark Aramini's write-up on the story or the, the Borsky article or any of the other things that we'll be talking about in the discussion. I also have to say, I resisted the urge to just write to Mark about this. I was like halfway through writing him an email (laughs) when I stopped myself, realized it's against the rules. But I wonder, Brandon, if this is something that you encountered or have any thoughts about. Is her name really Kim Kim Glowing or is it Kim Glowing or what's going on here? Yeah, I think it is Kim Glowing. None of the scholarship seems to pay attention to the names as as meaningful or allegorical in, in those senses of meaning uh, Mark certainly in his write-up of the story doesn't have too much to say about what these names might allude to or point to other than things that are in the world. And as we'll see with Red Cloy, that name does have an analog in the world. And I think this Kim, whatever it is, is a tree blossom or something like that that blows in the air or some sort of flowering plant that survives the winter. And it's the fact that it's blowing from tree to tree like a soft star in the air. It's something that's catching the light that I think the name glowing comes from. But across the scholarship, again, I found when whenever you know Joan, Joan Gordon or Mark Aramini are referring to Kim glowing, some of these articles were written before this was collected in The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories and Other Stories. It does not appear to be a typo. So I just think it's meant to be a type of tree blossom or something that the way it's blowing in the air gently catches the light. And uh, we're supposed to get from this description a sense that Kim Glowing is a sort of gentle, uh, beautiful creature in her mother's eyes, uh, though the story we get about her is very different. And so for me, the names of the stories don't necessarily carry a lot of extra meaning apart from maybe an interest in the world building or what's in the world that the names refer to or perhaps hints to the types of animals that these various tribes may represent you know given the the totem reading of the story well, this is great to, to to hear. I guess I'm just still kind of on edge because of how much uh, how much controversy there was about whether it was Mary Pink Butterflies or many Pink Butterflies I in know, the story yeah. by John V. Marsh. Yeah. So it just, yeah, it just was like, we've got to get this right. And actually, I'm not sure if we've ever said on air 
yet uh, that we were totally wrong, right? That Mark was right and we were wrong. It is really, it was a typo. It was supposed to be many pink butterflies, not merry pink butterflies. And the way that we know this is that the uh, the Italian translator of The Fifth Head of Cerberus uh, wrote to Wolf uh, for clarification on this. And the answer he got was, it's supposed to be many pink butterflies, not merry pink butterflies. So there publicly, our, our mea culpa, we'll do that maybe more more formally in a, a Road So Far uh, episode uh, coming up. Yeah, absolutely. And and we should also point out that uh, careless copy editing and typos in Wolf's book are a constant source, a constant source of stress and frustration to uh, Gene Wolf, the writer, when he was writing these things. I mean, uh, it's part of maybe his reason why why he just hadn't commented a lot on his stories and their meaning um, because he put all this energy into these precise word choices and uh, spellings and and ideas and his uh, editors or copy editors at least treated him just like a science fiction writer where uh, you could get the gist of it by reading the story and you're just going to put it on the bottom of a bookshelf or give it to a used bookstore I mean you get comment we'll we'll encounter Wolf's ire uh, as we continue on with the podcast with his copy editors yeah we certainly will unfortunately mark has done a ton of work on on figuring out what the typos are and what they really should be what the text is really supposed to say so we're really grateful to have that that level of just really just textual scholarship here for these stories and we will be making great use of that as we go well uh Let's let's figure out what Kim's story is here. What, what's her deal? So she also is searching for the Great Slay. And in this case, it's because somebody named Fishcatcher is dead. And the Great Slay is the only place left where she wishes to be. Uh, this is cryptic, of course, right? And we're going to get some explication as we go. Fishcatcher, she says, was a male of her people. And, and someone struck him across the face with an Endieva wand. And he was in great pain. Uh, Endieva is a word that Wolf has made up here. And wand just means stick, so we, we shouldn't necessarily be thinking Harry Potter, though there may indeed be a bit of magic or, or science as magic in the, in the future of this story here. So Kim brings Fishcatcher to the Great Slay because they are known to be wise, and she begs them to heal him, but they won't do it because they aren't the ones who caused his suffering. They didn't hurt him, so they're not going to heal him. But in the end, they do actually decide to heal him, but only after Kim begins to weep and to tear her hair and the justification here that they have for this is that, well, now they have actually caused the suffering of Kim because their existence and their presence here on this planet has, has given her hope that Fishcatcher could be healed. And so now they have a moral obligation to end her suffering, which means ending Fishcatcher's suffering, means healing him. All of this has a real prime directive feel to it, or really, I should say, General Order One, which is what it still would have been known as here in 1975 when this story was published. And so Fishcatcher is healed, and he and Kim go off, and then Kim strikes him again with the Endieva wand, and this time he dies. And this detail, or the way that she presents this, this is a kind of tacit admission that she's the someone who struck him in the first place, right? Uh, but I also want to make sure that we are emphasizing the use of the word struck here rather than hit, which, which may be valuable later when we're trying to think about what this Endieva wand is. This is going to become a much bigger deal uh, in in uh, later episodes here. Uh, and now, at this point, really, she wants to be punished in some way for murdering fish catcher. She wants to give herself to the people of the Great Slay. She wants to do their menial labor. She wants to eat their scraps because she's murdered Fishcatcher, whom I, I think we can safely posit was a lover of hers, maybe even you know her, her mate. And she wants to be punished for this. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I'm getting real 
domestic violence vibes here from Kim Blowing regarding Fishcatcher. That story of their relationship is not fleshed out, but we'll see. But we'll see how her character is revealed in the rest of the story. And she does not come across nearly as capricious and unloving and murderous as she does with this uh, story that she tells about fish catcher. And I get the sense that she was pushed to violence or viewed this action as her only option and then is racked with guilt as a result of her actions. But then her own need to survive or her own codependence with fish catcher wins out and, when Fishcatcher gets stronger, she realizes she has to act again because he's going to dominate her. And she just doesn't think she can win in, in any situation. So she wants, as you pointed out, Glenn, to live a life of penance to some degree. And also, yes, this NDA of a wand is one handy tool, as we'll, as we'll learn about in the future. Yeah, I'm glad you want to dwell here on her backstory because this backstory is motive, right? It's it's motivation for why is she chasing after the great sleigh? And, you know, they're going to team up here, right? The narrator and Kim Glowing, they're going to team up. But we want to understand what's her personal motive here? What's her personal stake? Why is she going on this journey? And the backstory that we get here is way more complicated than it needs to be, right, in order to to do that. I think a, a lesser fantasy writer would, would give a, a real simple explanation or maybe even use fish catcher use uh, a love interest a, a mate here in the as as a motive in the by saying well you know they have fish catcher and i'm trying to to get to them or something like that this is much more complex much more complicated than that but then also at the same time wolf doesn't give us enough details to really fully understand it it's a it's a it's an interesting move but it certainly makes us want to know more right this this keeps us turning the pages to try to find out more about what her what her story is and we are going to you know when her story when her part in this story wraps up we're going to get some real uh, emotional resonance uh, from her we're going to understand what the emotional journey is that she's been on that's going to be really compelling but here you know there's no there's no sight of that when Wolf just introduces that. But he, he's, he's planting really strong seeds here. All right. Well, I've really only recapped part of this conversation because, again, this is a wolfish conversation. It, it dances around. It buries the important world building and mystery making bits inside the plot stuff. So let's go back. Let's look at Kim's observations here about the narrator and, and about the Great Slay. Kim is the first person we've met who believes that the Great Slay is from another world. She, she tells us that she always thought there were other worlds, but that no one else would believe her until the Great Slay came. And I love this because it implies that she sometimes actually liked to talk about her belief in other worlds to her people. Like maybe she's actually a kind of religious nut among her people. But it also implies that now that the Great Slay is here, other people are talking about other worlds too. And, and maybe it's her own people. Maybe it's just other individuals that she's met on her journey here. But in either case, this shows that the, the mystical reverence that the Pamagaka have is not the only response to the Great Slay. That some people are thinking of this in material concerns, practical concerns. Uh, they're you know using the existence of the Great Slay here to expand or alter their cosmology that 
they have maybe a less mystical and and more scientific approach to thinking about this new thing that has arrived in, in their in their world. And we do get a sort of confirmation that the the great Slay and and also the narrator are indeed from another planet when he says that he feels like he used to be on another world and that on that other world he was a heavier person. I mean we've sussed this out for ourselves already I think, but it's nice to have it it confirmed here or you know as close to confirmed as we're ever really going to get. But the more significant thing that is going on here is that Kim calls into doubt whether the narrator really is one of the great slave people. Here's what she says. Do you know, I don't think you are one of them at all. You are dressed a great deal like them, but you don't have quite the same face. You might be one of our people wearing their clothing. And she goes on to say, your expression is different. And then your mouth is too wide and your teeth seem too big. But it may be that I am wrong. Perhaps it is all in the expression. And that is really all we get here. That's what we get of this. Uh, there's a, a bit more about how they stopped that night and, and Kim shows him a clever way of getting fish out of an iced over stream. And uh, there's some hope that they're going to reach the great sleigh tomorrow. And maybe, in fact, they will, because that is going to be the seventh day. That's a day with some Christian significance, obviously, which is always something that Wolf likes to play with. But that is going to bring this section to a close, this this camping at night here. And this is as far as our recap is going to take us on this episode. Yeah, and I just have a few things to say here. You know, Kim Blowing is really displaying a very simple cosmology. I like how much detail you went into about her sense of a dreamer, but I don't think that Kim Blowing is necessarily committed to the idea that there are other planets or people from other planets. Uh, rather, she says that, there is a world of dreams and worlds above and beneath them. And this is a fascinating statement. And and perhaps she is sort of transcending her animal nature. And that is something that makes her so strange to her people. Um, and I, I just love the way Wolf is playing with these senses of other worlds and Kim Blowing's understanding of what those worlds are. We have to keep this idea that Cutthroat is not one of the people of the Great Slay in mind. Kim Blowing, though, I think, sees something of the spiritual nature of people and the world. And maybe what she sees in him isn't that he doesn't look like the people of the Great Slay so much as he doesn't resemble them on a different level that she can't quite articulate. The way she can't see that the world of dreams and worlds above and beneath them is is metaphorical language not literal language and that there are literally other worlds and planets all over the galaxy or solar system where they are um but i just want to point that out before we close out today to keep in mind for the discussion and and it's really just the simple idea of kim blowing's seeing and perception in the world uh and and how she experiences the world as a result so on that note, that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha, And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Let us know what you thought of our second episode covering up to day six of Tracking Song. And if you would like to support the network and help us make more podcasts, please check us out at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. Every pledge we get is a huge help and lets us do even more podcasting for you guys. Uh, next time, we're going to be back with part three of Tracking Song. We're going to read up to page 201. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.